Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are our Transfer Market Insiders and Pundits Extraordinaire, Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. On today's Transfer Podcast, Marcus Rashford has been on fire under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer with six goals in his last 10 games. But is the striker ready to take over from Romelu Lukaku and claim his place as an iconic Manchester United number nine? With Everton now in ninth place, despite having spent a relative king's ransom, Marco Silva is a man under pressure. We ask when it's all going wrong at Goodiston Park. And we look at Sergio Aguero's third goal against Arsenal and ask if Premier League referees are properly applying the handball law. Marcus Rashford continued his astonishing form under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer with the winning goal against Leicester at the weekend. It's his sixth goal in the 10 games since the Norwegian boss took over. Now, lads, we've had our reservations about his readiness to take up the number nine mantle. Ian, is he now proving his mettle? I think the stats certainly tell you that. Um, his performances have improved. I'm not sure that it's entirely down to um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer or Rashford himself. Um, I would say there's been a very subtle but significant tweak in midfield which Solskjaer has made, and that is to play Pogba as a number 10 and to switch to 4-2-3-1. So you then have Herrera and Matic as the double pivot in defensive midfield. Um, and then you have Martial, um Pogba and Lingard uh, playing up, up top uh, with Rashford given licence to play through the middle because be, before uh, under Mourinho, Lukaku was often the central striker. So um, I think what we'll see in terms of Rashford upping his game has been that, um, first of all, he's in the right position, i.e. through the middle, to take chances and to convert chances. But more importantly, and again, this was the case um uh, at the weekend when he scored the winning goal um, against Leicester, it was um, Pogba. Pogba's very quick thinking and uh, very um, expertly delivered pass into Lingard's pass, which allowed him to take control of the ball and score. Um, I don't think there's ever been a problem with Rashford in terms of ability. I think confidence has been more his problem um, over the course of the last maybe eight or nine months. Uh, we've seen him play really well for England, but then again, come back to Manchester United, not play as well. Uh, Rush is one of those players who, you know, at his age, needs the endorsement and the confidence of his manager. He needs to have that arm around him that people speak about um, uh, as being special. And in the case of um, Solskjaer to Rashford, then who better a mentor could you have than someone who clearly is a, a legendary striker at Manchester United, albeit um, known as super sub, whereas Rashford himself obviously uh, has been starting games. But the, the point being that if um, if he has Solskjaer's confidence and Solskjaer is coaching him or even just giving him little nuggets of information or coaching advice with regards to his positioning, with regards to how long it takes him to bring the ball under control or shoot first time, etc., etc., then what we're seeing is is the uh, the fruits of that in Marcus Rashford, which, you know, as you said, Johnny is is proving to be vital for Manchester United's revival, <clears throat> and I think also um, will be something that um, Gareth Southgate has obviously uh, taken note of as well as England manager because uh, he also had his 
kind of um, ifs and buts about about Rashford. But I think that the form he's in right now, um, he is definitely uh, you know one of the first names on the team sheet. I remember talking to um, someone in Mourinho's coaching staff about this time last year when Rashford had had hit a poor run of form for Manchester United after Alexis Sanchez came into the team. Um, and he wasn't getting quite as much game time as he had been getting. He, he always got a lot of game time, but it, it was reduced um, post-Sanchez coming in because he wasn't uh, starting on, in that left-wing role as often. And uh, and his form was poor, um, therefore his his chances were reduced because of that. And he was you know, asking that person why he felt... Rashford was struggling and, and his argument was, look, sometimes with young players in particular, they just hit bad runs. They just have, they lose their confidence. Um, things don't go for them. Um, and particularly when you're talking about strikers, where it's the difference between a very good game and an average game can just be putting the ball in the net or or even striking the ball properly. Um, and, and making the making the keeper make a save instead of missing an opportunity, uh, that confidence can go quite quickly. Um, I think there's definitely an element there in that. Um, and I think, as Ian's pointed out, he's now got himself in exactly the situation he wants in the sense that when Solskjaer came in, he identified that uh, one of the options he had, and, and probably the only... You know, serious option he had for his central striker at that time was to put Rashford in there because um, Romelu Lukaku had been struggling with his weight and his form and with injury um, and he needed to play someone else in that position. Uh, he did so. He, he gave um, uh, Rashford a lot of uh, mental support, a lot of encouragement, talked in press conferences about how much belief he had in the quality of his attacking players and uh, and put him in a situation where he had more opportunities to score goals. Um, partly because of the system he was playing, as Ian points out, using quite often using Pogba as a number 10, giving him the, the, a free role and giving him the, the, the options to hit those kind of passes he's so good at, but also because of the opponents they were playing um, where there were going to be opportunities to score, which... To be fair to Rashford, he's taken. He scored six of the 25 goals I think Manchester United have scored in the in the 10 games since uh, Solskjaer's been in charge. Um, and he's he's flying at present. It's not that he's taking every chance presented to him, um, but he's getting more of the kind of chances that we and others have identified as the, the kind of things he likes, which is the ball placed ahead of him using his pace to run onto, um, getting him into a situation with a one-on-one -on -one the goalkeeper where it's where, where there's, there's a, a shot to be taken. I don't see that the big improvement in uh, the elements of his play that Mourinho had doubts about, which was what's he like with his back to goal? What's he like um, taking aerial balls? Um, what's he like bringing other players bringing the rest of his team into the game in those situations you know we saw not just with Manchester United but with England in the World Cup um, Rashford being brought on in, in difficult situations for example the game against Croatia semi-final of the World Cup and being asked to deal with a lot of long balls hit to him by a team that was under pressure and didn't have much possession 
and and basically being able, unable to cope with that because he doesn't like playing that way. Um, so that's something for Solskjaer, I think, to develop. And I think that there's a good possibility he can do that because he um, knows, as a striker, um, the ways, the difficulties strikers can run into and can give them the kind of tips to involve their game, to improve their game. And one of the things I found quite striking towards the end of Mourinho's reign was a period in which he was asked about the performance of his strikers and um, about improving their, their ability to finish. And he basically in a press conference said, that's not something you can do. It comes down to uh, what they have. I'm paraphrasing here, but it comes down to what they have and you, you can't improve that as a coach. That surprised me because I rarely hear Mourinho saying things about the managerial process, which are obviously incorrect, and that you can clearly improve players. You can give them tips. You can work on their striking ability. Look to Cristiano Ronaldo, for example, stories of, of what happened with him while he was at Manchester United, specific training with him, uh, separate from the rest of the team on how to what options to take in different areas, how to strike the ball in different areas, how to score goals from positions that seem difficult or hard and, and add elements to his game that he didn't have before. So, so that is possible. And I think under Solskjaer, um, because he sees that as a possibility, Rashford can benefit from that. The big question, I guess, is how far can Manchester United go with him as the central striker or as the, as the, as the, as the main front man um, against the very top teams and, and in game circumstances that previously he wouldn't have liked. Um, and that's, that's where we're going to see what the element of confidence and development and um, Solskjaer helping him, how far and how many things he can bring out in his game so that he can become that kind of all-round centre forward who um, makes a difference against all the teams in all the situations. Because yet, I don't see that in his game um, having evolved yet. He had a much easier, arguably, chance before the goal he scored and, and, and missed. And I think in times gone by, his head would have gone down and, and his confidence would have been blown at that point. And instead, he came back for more. And I've heard it said time and time again, and most notably from the legendary Scottish uh, number nine, Mr. McCoist, that you cannot allow your head to go down. Missing chances is part of the game, as much as scoring goals, and you have to keep there and keep trying. And that's what Rashford did against Leicester, and obviously they they got the victory as a result. So that is significant as well. Just to touch on what Duncan said there, Ian. Managers up in Scotland at the weekend said the fastest way out of management is to ask players to do what they cannot do. I wonder uh, with Mourinho and what Duncan was saying regarding uh, improving Rashford's ability to take the ball out the air uh, or turn with the ball uh, and play effectively as a target man. Is that asking him to do something that he will never be able to do? I mean, did Gerard Hooley ask Michael Owen in his pomp to be able to do that kind of thing? No, he didn't because that wasn't his game. I think there's something in that. Um, as a football purist, I've always um, believed that footballers should try to expand their own abilities and to uh, improve themselves. Uh, for instance, I 
absolutely loathe the whole concept of a player who can't kick equally with both feet. And yet, that's one of the, the you know main things that we talk about when someone um, is in a team at elite level. We'll say, well, if he got on his good foot, you know, he probably would have scored that goal. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I was taught when I was, you know, very young that you have to practice on both feet so that you can play equally well with both. And, and, I, and I find it odd that being the case. So when you talk about Rashford, is he a target man? Well, he's not because he's physically not up to it. Um, can he play with the ball uh, back to goal and then turn? Yes, he probably can do that, but he needs to have um, running support in the second phase of play. That therefore he can either p- play the ball um, in behind or he can lay the ball <clears throat> lay the ball off and then accept the ball again once he's in, in the box. So <clears throat> that's more about coaching him to play with teammates than it is coaching him himself. Um, I agree with Duncan that is very much his strength is one on one facing goal and and bearing down on goal to score or um, taking on a cross which has arrived and he's arriving either front back post or wherever uh, just to make the tap in. So um, for me, <clears throat> Rashford, yes, does have room for improvement. But I wouldn't say that holding the ball up and being a target striker is something that he will ever be. I think, look, he's physically, he's not, he's not Romelu Lukaku, but he's not Michael Owen either. You know, he's, uh, he's one, one metre 80 and he's got quite a muscular physique. So he should be able to hold the, the ball up and he should have the capacity, you know, not to, not to play as an out-and-out uh, target man, but certainly not to shy away from aerial balls, which I think you've seen him doing that in the past. So that there, there's ability to develop that side of the game. I mean, the, the other side of what we're saying about Mourinho not wanting to, or saying he couldn't work on, on developing players' abilities. And I, I was talking to another um, coach privately the other week, and he said, look, it's not very often you find players who you can turn into something they're not. Um, usually you're better off working with their, their, the, the, the basic way in which they play and, and deploying them in the team to utilise that. Not many players are, are you know, you're capable of, of fundamentally changing them, which is, you know, the other side of the coin there. And, and, I, and then the one thing I should probably know, having said so much about playing Mar- Marcus Rashford as a central striker, um, Solskjaer's actually been quite clever about that in that he's, although he's played Rashford as the, the main finisher, he hasn't played him in a central role all of the time. He's quite often, as we, as we saw in, the, in you know, the, the win against Tottenham for the first time, um, used that, a clever tactical ploy of playing Rashford off the right wing with Jesse Lingard as a, as a false nine um, and allowing Rashford to play yeah, essentially against one defender um, and use his pace uh, to, to get into positions where he's, he's, he likes to finish rather than putting him in that central role where he, he sometimes struggles getting pinned down by, by two centre-backs. So, um, yeah, we should probably be careful about saying he's demonstrating he can play as a central striker because he's not always actually being played as a proper central striker in the, in the system Solskjaer's using. Um, although that system has been working very well against teams in particular who who play with high fullbacks and uh, and allow the space for Rashford or, and Martial usually in the other other um, wing to exploit. 
After slumping to defeat against Wolves, Marco Silva is a man under pressure. They are sitting ninth as Everton in the league, having spent pretty much a fortune in the summer on top of an already expensive squad. Ian, what's going wrong? Well, it's interesting um, that um, if you compare Silva's um, stats, actually, um, when he was at Watford before, um, generally speaking, he, he does tend to take a while to get the team moulded into what he wants them to be. Um, and his win stats, uh, or even you know non-defeat stats, um, are not dissimilar to uh, when he had at Watford, um, as he has now at Everton. Now, we all know the um, very kind of long and aggravated process that was um, Everton's trying to employ Marco Silva as a manager and uh, the uh, ins and outs of compensation, etc., with Watford. And so I don't, d- despite results, and I don't see them looking at the situation and thinking, well, did we make a mistake? Should we get rid or anything like that? I think it's more a case of um, they need to be patient. Um, I think the players that they, they, they have brought in that have not necessarily acclimatised and um, integrated as quickly or as effectively as obviously Marco Silva would have wanted. Um, it seems to me that uh, he is unsure of his best first eleven, which again comes with um, inconsistent results, um, as well as the fact that um, he is dealing with um, a group of players who I said look to me um, the new ones are struggling to to integrate properly. So um, it's, it's it's a little bit of a kind of smoke and mirrors. You know, ninth place is not exactly dreadful for Everton. At the same time, obviously, with the investment they made and with employing Silva as manager, they'd be looking for at least Europa League spot, which is attainable still. Um, it's just that uh, they, they, they seem to be having these bad results against teams who you'd expect them to beat um, and, and being beaten quite comprehensively, as they were last weekend, um, by a team who've just been promoted in Wills. So it's, um, it's a difficult um, situation, I think, for... Um, for the, for the, the the owner at Everton who obviously put so much faith um, in Silva and and also invested so much money, but what I don't see and what I, I've heard um, from people close to the club is that there's no panic and there's certainly no will to um, get rid of him. I think they trust that they've got the right man for the longer term and that they expect results to um, improve. Uh, into, from from now until the end of the season, and for uh, the rebuilding, if you like, um, project to um, progress in the summer window as well. And you have to say as well, they, they, you know, they have had some outstanding um, individual performances, notably from Jordan Pickford, the, the goalkeeper, um, who has been brilliant um, even in defeats, but. Um, they need to build a better defence, I think. They need to stabilise that and then harness some of the creativity they have midfield to front. Um, I think St. Tosin hasn't really um, proven himself and he obviously wasn't a Marco Silva signing uh, as a striker. Um, but they, they need more goals um, and I think it was probably the right thing to do not to invest heavily in the January market because there wasn't much available. 
they're not in any danger of relegation as far as I, I'm concerned. Therefore, just give him his head, basically, for the next four or five months, um, identify the right targets for the summer, invest again, and then and then give him a clean a clean sort of go at it as of um, August, September next year, uh, this year. I think Everton are a good example of what goes wrong when you when you buy badly in the market. Um, you just you basically just got to look back to what happened when the the Farhad Mashiri fronted um, group took over Everton, um, and uh, the summer of two thousand sixteen when Ronald Koeman came in as manager, and uh, they were you know they were pretty much in a position where they're um, they had three different people. Um, shopping uh, simultaneously, um, and they had a lot of money to spend. Um, so they Kuman, they had um, Bill Kenwright still being involved with his people within the club and the, the new ownership all buying, and and they they bought um, the following summer, we should say, um, the, uh, the 2017 window. They they were buying. Um, the same for the same position, all three groups. So you, you know, the Wayne Rooney coming in with Sigurdsson, who was Kuman's choice, um, other number tens, other creative players, and then they, they very rapidly built up a, a really imbalanced squad um, and an expensive squad um, with players on substantially higher wages uh, and and one that wasn't working. Um, and they've gone through various managers since then trying to solve the problem of that imbalanced squad. Um, all of them being allowed to spend, uh, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But if you keep stacking up players for uh, different views of how a team should be run, um, and you obviously struggle to get rid of the, the players that you've overspent on, um, which they have in the main overspent on a lot of players, you know, guys like Morgan Schneiderlin, for example, um, Clearly a poor buy. Rooney, you just have to look, although the wages were being subsidised by Manchester United, you just have to look what happened with that and how quickly he was moved out. Um, it then becomes very difficult for anyone to manage because you've got a, a large squad of players, um, a good chunk of whom aren't fit for purpose, um, a good chunk of whom you can't get out. So you're left with unhappy players at the training ground, which makes it difficult for the manager to put his plan in place. Uh, gives them so many unnecessary problems in the background, um, which makes it harder for him to manage day to day. Um, I think I think they've had they've had some misfortune um, in terms of individual games. I mean, you you look at Jordan Pickford, for example, literally throwing points away. Um, in uh, sort of emotionally um, the, the most important game of the season for them at Liverpool and the, there's, there's clearly a, a lack of confidence in the team and, and I think you can see that Marco Silva is frustrated with where he is and, and the way the team is performing and that then sort of spreads through the camp um, and also to the ownership, who remember are pretty new in football, um, have committed to invest a lot of money in the project. Um, you know, there's a, a new stadium to be built, which will which will massively increase their um, their financial investment in the club. 
and expected results quicker than this. And, and we've seen you know, public statements from Farhad Mashiri talking about his dissatisfaction of where things are, which is only going to add to the pressure on the manager. Um, and when he was hired and because of the way he was hired, because of the expense they went to in hiring him, that adds additional uh, complications to his role because he's not just been brought in as a normal manager out of work. Um, we pay a certain amount as, as salary to him and we see how he gets on. This is the guy they targeted and got into a huge fight with Watford to extract. Therefore, um, the owners, again, emphasising the owners, of naivety and newness in football expect better results. So I think it is a complicated um, position for them, but I also think it will take a long time to unravel all of this because um, a lot of the work is going to be involved in trimming down the squad, getting rid of players who are no longer fit for purpose, probably never were fit for purpose, and giving, whether it's Marco Silva going into next season or whether they decide to change manager again, giving the man in charge a, a solid platform, an uncomplicated platform to work from, to try and do something which is you know, actually quite a big ask and turn a, a team that has not been in, the, in the, the top end, the very top end of English football for a number of years into a club that can genu genuinely compete with the, the big six as they are now because there's a... There, you have to say there's a huge gap between Everton as a club, um, as a squad, and as performances on the field um, to what the rest of the, 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 the top teams, the teams that Mashiri and co are aiming to get in amongst, are, are doing at present. Okay, Duncan, you've had a bee in your bonnet regarding what you consider to be a handball from Sergio Aguero in his third goal against Arsenal at the weekend. And how you feel uh, Premier League referees are applying the law. Is that correct? Well, do I consider it to be a handball? Um, yes, the ball hit Sergio Aguero's arm for the third goal. Um, if it hit his body first and then his arm comes down on the ball, um, you see the path change slightly once it comes off his arm and goes in the net. Duncan, um, just before you go on, because I know people will ask this, uh, so I want to make sure you address it. There is a video going around on Twitter that you will have seen because people have tweeted it to you that is from a different angle that it doesn't look like it comes off his arm. Have you seen that video? Yeah, I'm referring to that video. I think if you watch that, that video, um, you see the ball hit is, is, is going to his uh, torso, comes back off, his arm comes down, makes contact with the ball, ball changes past slightly, and then goes in the net. Um, you know, all the angles show... Uh, his arm hitting the ball. Uh, there's no question it's an intentional handball. It's not an intentional handball. The ball is struck into him. His arm comes down to it, onto it, goes in the net. The, I mean, the interesting thing for me is that under the, um, the rule that English football has added to uh, the actual laws of the game this season, um, which they did without telling anyone publicly, that should not have been a goal. Uh, under you know, the English reinterpretation of the laws of the game, FIFA laws of the game, any ball that goes in the net, um, having hit an arm or a hand, the referees have been told to declare that an on-goal. 
which obviously we got the, the big controversy over Willie Bolly's goal against Manchester City for Wolves earlier in the season. Um, I wrote a, an article for the record um, about that at the time, talking about how it, that had exposed the way in which the English authorities had, uh, had effectively rewritten the rules without, um, without informing the public. Uh, because the, the referees in that instance missed the fact the ball went in off Bolly's hand. Um, and then some of the ex-referees who were commentating on TV uh, noted that uh, under the, the way referees had been told to to officiate games, that the goal should have been um, should have been chalked off. And we've had three of those goals this season. This season. Um, all of them, if you talk to FIFA officials, will say... Yeah, they're good goals because they're, they're unintentional handballs. The rule says a handball is only penalised if it's a deliberate action. Um, therefore, they should have counted as goals. But English football has got itself into this ridiculous situation where they've decided to go against the, the universal um, agreed-on rules of the game because, as, um, as Dermot Gallagher actually explained after yesterday's match, it didn't sit right with certain people that the ball goes in the net off an arm. Um, they've now done the correct thing, which is apply to IFAB, the body which, um, which is responsible for changing the laws of the game, and ask that the rules be changed so that in those circumstances a goal can never be scored um, off a hand. Um, and IFAB will decide on that uh, later this year, and we'll find out if it goes into the into the new rules. But I think actually yesterday was a really good example of why it would be um, dangerous to do that because Aguero would be punished for what is you know a marginal contact to the arm and an unintentional contact to the arm. Um, for me, that's a perfectly good goal. He's not trying to gain any advantage um, by, you know, it's not he's not punching the ball into the net. You know, the classic kind of France versus Ireland uh, World Cup decider type goal. It, he doesn't know what's happening. It comes off and goes in the net. That's that's why the the handball rule has been framed the way it has. Um, and there, there are lots of repercussions to changing the handball rule to one in which anything that comes off the hand in certain circumstances is is um, is is declared you can't score a goal from it because you get defenders um, hitting the ball off the heart and intentionally in certain situations to gain advantage. Um, so yeah, that's that's what I, I found amusing was that uh, I was questioning whether the Premier League had gone back to the real rules of the game or whether the officials had just missed. Um, the handball in that situation and uh, and ignored the rules that the Premier League have decided to implement this season. I thought that it was um, the least intentional handball goal I think I've ever seen. Um, Aguero clearly does not make any effort whatsoever to move his hand towards the ball in order that it goes into the net. Um, it clearly strikes his rib cage as well first and then onto his arm. And if you flip this argument... Um, regarding handball and say um, how, how and when penalties are given for handball in the box um, then it's always referred to as hand to ball not ball to hand um, in order to uh, interfere with play and therefore stop a goal scoring opportunity 
So in this case, if you applied the same rule to Aguero um, as he's on the floor and the ball comes off his ribcage and then onto his hand, you'd have to say, well, that was definitely not hand to ball. It was ball to hand. So what you can't have one rule um, which interprets and uh, decides whether uh, a penalty stroke is given or a goal-scoring opportunity is prevented and one in which a goal-scoring op- a goal scored is a goal scored or not. So I, as far as I'm concerned, it was it was a good decision uh, not to, to, to chop the, the ball, the, the goal off, I should say. However, we have now have the sort of third eye of VAR, which is due to be applied in um, next season, August, when the Premier League uh, reconvenes for the 19-2020 season. And I wonder, in that case, what the video assistant referee would give, because it does clearly come off his hand. And as Duncan has rightly pointed out, this is something the Premier League have chosen to reinterpret um, through IFAB FIFA rules as being a, a non-goal or non, a situation where the goal should not stand. So do we give that um, same instruction to the video assistant referee or does that decision roll on from what the referee sees on the field? Yet another sort of source of potential controversy in terms of interpretation of the laws. It's a difficult one. Um, and in the circumstances of the game, we have to point out that you know it was 2-1 at the time and Arsenal was still with the chance of, of, of you know, possibly getting something from the game. And instead, they end up losing 3-1. So um, it's, I think that it will be something that will be discussed again. And I'm, I was told um, by someone at UEFA this morning um, that there is uh, certainly uh, an intention to have a meeting with IFAB and with FIFA uh, in the near future to discuss this again and uh, use <clears throat> the Aguero goal as an example of how do we actually settle this once and for all because it can't be allowed to be a grey area. A VAR point is a very um, important one here because you, you know, Johnny, you're saying that you didn't think it hit his arm from, from seeing that angle that we didn't see during the game. Um, I think you can see it hits his arm there. Um, I, I see a lot of Manchester City fans using that as definitive evidence that it didn't hit his arm. But what happens in, when we have VAR? Because there's, I think I've seen at least four, maybe five different um, views of that uh, incident. Um, in four of the five, it looks clearly like as handball. And then you get that one view directly from behind where the arm, you can have a, you can have a doubt over whether the arm has, has touched the ball and you have to watch it quite carefully, look at in in real slow-mo to, to see the, the contact and the deviation. But you know, that takes a, a quite a lot a long period of time and it's dependent on having access to all those angles. Um, that angle which uh, has been used as ev- as an attempt at evidence that he didn't touch the ball um, was one that only appeared after the, the match. So if the, if the VARs only have access to a couple, two or three angles quickly and make the decision off those, and then subsequently after the game, we get an angle like that, which where it looks questionable, or it looks like he doesn't touch the ball, we're going to get more VAR controversy in that the, the VAR will give the decision saying, yes, um, 
that was handball, if the rule has been changed to the ball can't go in the net off an arm in any circumstances, as the English authorities want it to be for next season, that goal will be uh, chopped off. And then the next morning, we'll get the angle, um, which which has uh, a question mark over it. And people say, oh, well, even the VAR's got it wrong. And again, it just shows you the fallibilities with the VAR system. So you get all this interruption and delay, um, uh, and then you end up with a controversial decision regardless, even when it's just based on, on a clear, slow-motion video that some, some people have time to have a look at. It just You don't get quick, correct decisions with a system, which, again, puts the fundamental question, is it an advantage to have it or not? Or what, what's it going to do to the game ultimately by having every controversial decision in the game reanalyzed by people... Um, not even at the stadium, um, who have their, some may have their own agenda over um, why they give a decision or not. Okay, I'm going to move us on now to our final segment, the Heroes and Villains round. So we're going to start with you, Duncan, and you're going to give us your hero of the weekend. Okay, so my hero of the weekend would be someone who's um, doing... Uh, a job that we kind of predicted he would do on the on the transfer window last season when uh, when Wolves' promotion to the Premier League was confirmed, um, and that's Nuno Espirito Santo, um, manager at that club, who have I think I, I would hope impressed everyone who watches Premier League football this season with the the quality of the play, um, the quality of the squad they've built and their ability to take results from um, the very best of opponents in the Premier League. Um, deservedly, I think, seventh in, in the table. Um, and uh, I think the most important thing here is I would expect this only to be the beginning of, of what Wolves can do. They were, um, to a degree, restricted in the transfer market in the summer. There was only a certain amount of spending they could make um, because of uh, financial fair play rules. I believe they're going to go um, and spend heavily again as far as they can next summer. And um, and I think that'll allow them to round out the team some more uh, so that they're capable of getting more results against the teams lower in the division. That's been their weakness this season is when teams sit in against them, they find it a bit harder. So I think upward trajectory for them and, and, uh, and Nuno, the hero of the weekend. Okay, Ian, what about our villain? Bit of a pantomime villain, I think, this weekend, uh, Johnny. I know we're <clears throat> running out of time for such a farce that's involved in theatres all over the country. Um, however, um, Paul Ince made some very rash, I think, and um, and rather lazy comments regarding um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and the job he's done at Manchester United since, um, since Jose Mourinho was sacked. Uh, and said that basically he or Steve Bruce or Mark Hughes and, you know, right away you you got the red light flashing old boys network here um, could have done exactly the same job if they'd been given the caretakership of the club. Um, First of all, that's disrespectful to Solskjaer because he's the one who was chosen and gone and done the job and done it well. And secondly, it's coming from a man who his managerial career is um, you know not exactly covered in glory. MK Dons, Blackburn Rovers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, if he was that good a manager, then maybe they would have come to him and said, "Insy, do you fancy taking on the job because you are the governor?" Um, 
and Mark Hughes, who, you know, obviously uh, is not, again, someone who has covered himself in any kind of glory regarding his managerial career. Um, so uh, Steve Bruce obviously has a job now at Sheffield Wednesday to do. It just seems to me that it was lazy. Um, it was, I think, on his part, um, disrespectful, but also just a little bit kind of um, also uh, envious, I think, um, on the basis that, oh, who is Ole Gunnar Solskjaer? Why should he have got this opportunity and not me, who is a legend of the English game, etc., etc. So my villain of the weekend has to be Paul Ince. And I notice as well, um, he's increased his villain and villainy uh, <clears throat> um, grades by um, being asked again uh, if he wanted to retract it and saying no I still believe that what I said was correct and um, I'm sticking with it so Insy, put your neck in son uh, get out there do some coaching and then let's see if you can be manager man yeah, someday OK well it's time to call time on this particular transfer window podcast uh, fear not though we shall be back on Wednesday to fulfil all your podcasting needs. Uh, to talk to any of us, we are all on Twitter. Of course, there is a Transfer Window official account at Transfer Podcast. If you want to speak to me, I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane. And more importantly, our pundits are at Duncan Castles and at Garbo SJ. If you like the podcast, do us a big, big favour and go online and give us a five-star review as this helps us reach as many listeners as possible. So until Wednesday... Thanks for listening.